Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus is responsible for 8% of all hospital-acquired infections in the United States, leading to nearly 20,000 deaths per year. Several states have passed legislation mandating screening of hospital patients for MRSA. How effective are these screening programs? And what is CDC's role in controlling MRSA infections in healthcare settings? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. John Jernigan, Deputy Chief of the Prevention and Response Branch of the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Jernigan. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Exactly how common is hospital-acquired MRSA infection? Well, as you point out, the data we have from the National Healthcare Safety Network suggests that about 8% of all healthcare-associated infections are caused by methicillin-resistant staph. Now, interpreting that number, you have to keep a couple of things in mind. Number one, most of the data that's submitted to the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network is submitted from intensive care unit data, since that's been the most common site in which hospitals do this type of surveillance. That is changing, and we're getting a larger number of hospitals, and they're doing surveillance over a larger part of the hospital. So we hope to get more data on non-ICU settings in the coming years. It also doesn't account for some healthcare-associated MRSA infections that may be related to care that they receive in a hospital, but the infection's not manifested until sometime after they leave. We have reason to believe that these are not potentially not captured as efficiently as those that actually happen or manifest themselves while a patient is hospitalized. We have data from population-based surveillance systems that suggest that as much as 60% of all the severe MRSA disease falls into this category. That is, it's associated with the delivery of health care, but does not have its onset while the patient is hospitalized. And we need better methods to capture these to get a sense of the true burden of disease. And when we're talking about patients who have the infection in the hospital, does this tend to be serious infection, or are we just catching people who may be colonized? How serious is it? Well, it's definitely a serious pathogen. Staph aureus is probably responsible for a disproportionate amount of the morbidity and mortality because it is a particularly resistant pathogen. And we know that proportionally of the staph aureus infections, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% or more are caused by the resistant staph. And these resistant staphylococci are not as responsive to the current agents that we have available, although we do have treatment options. There are data to suggest that patients with resistant staphylococci have poorer outcomes than those who are infected with a sensitive variety of staph. Increased morbidity, mortality, increased length of stay, and those issues. It varies a bit by infection type as well. So for urinary tract infections, for example, Staphylococcus aureus is not a very common cause of infection. If you look at surgical site infections, particularly certain categories of surgery, such as cardiac and orthopedic surgery, Staph aureus accounts for as high as 50% of those infections. And again, about half of those or more being caused by resistant strains. So the 8% figure may be a little misleading in terms of the amount of morbidity mortality that's being caused by staph and the resistant forms of staph. And you might expect other invasive disease such as bacteremia, such as in a patient who has a central venous catheter maybe, ventilator-associated pneumonia. Are those the types of things that you might also expect? Absolutely. It's a common cause of catheter-associated bacteremia, 
and for ventilator-associated pneumonia, as you mentioned, and those particular infections are associated with high rates of morbidity and mortality as well. Now, just how is MRSA transmitted in healthcare settings? We think that the major reservoir of transmission is the infected or colonized patient, and it's transmitted either directly or indirectly from patient to patient by healthcare workers serving as transient vectors, most commonly due to transient colonization on their hands, but also potentially indirectly by contaminated equipment. It's important to remember that MRSA, when you look at the molecular epidemiology, the number of strains that are associated with healthcare-associated MRSA are very, very small. There's quite impressive homogeneity in the characterization of the strains that cause disease. And what this suggests that it is, of course, primarily a disease of transmission. We know that the general population now, we have better data on carriage rates of MRSA in the general population. And in general, it's quite low. Although it might be increasing, at last count, about 1.4% of all of the population of Americans carry MRSA in their nose, and, and much of that is actually not even the strains that are associated with healthcare delivery. If we contrast that to what's happening in a hospital, we know that in some places, as many as 10 to 15% of patients, even on admission to a unit or to a hospital, are carrying MRSA in these nose. And this discrepancy between what we find in the general population that we find amongst healthcare experienced people suggests that there's a lot of transmission that is happening in the healthcare setting. And anything we can do to decrease that will go a long way towards preventing these infections. Now, MRSA has gotten a lot of attention lately in the United States today, but why is it getting so much focus as opposed to other hospital-associated pathogens that could be transmitted, such as multidrug-resistant gram-negatives or C. difficile? Do you have any sense of that? I think there are a couple of reasons why that might be the case. Number one is the point that I made before is that MRSA is probably of the antimicrobial-resistant pathogens. It's, you know, probably the poster child for that. It is very common, probably the most common, and probably still clinically the most important of the antimicrobial-resistant pathogens that we follow. And because it's very clear that it is potentially preventable, because it is a disease of transmission, people have focused very much on trying to prevent its transmission. And I will point out that I think there are those that argue that if we can control transmission of MRSA in the healthcare setting and make a big difference in its impact, then what we learn in doing that will probably translate to other antimicrobial resistant pathogens that can be transmitted in hospitals. I also think that the emergence of methicillin-resistant staph as a community-associated pathogen has driven public interest in this. We, as you know, in recent decades before the year 2000, it was pretty unusual for an MRSA to be isolated from someone who wasn't very healthcare experienced. And we know that's changed dramatically. MRSA has emerged as a very common cause of skin and soft tissue infections in the United States and can also cause very severe infections and has captured a lot of public attention. So there's been a lot of focus on that pathogen. I think that's translated to some extent on the interest of MRSA as a healthcare-associated pathogen as well. It is true that it's only one of many important problems. You mentioned Clostridium difficile, which is increasing dramatically in this country and is a very important problem that we need to learn to control. And the emergent multidrug-resistant gram-negatives, for which many have no answer in terms of 
of antibiotic therapy, at least in terms of moderate agents. We're pulling off the shelf some very old drugs to try to treat some of these gram-negative infections that simply are resistant to all the modern antimicrobials. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. John Jernigan, Deputy Chief of Prevention and Response for CDC's Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine. We're discussing universal screening for MRSA among hospital patients. Now, some facilities have started to screen for MRSA upon hospital admission. Is there evidence that supports the use of this screening? Well, the genesis of that practice has to do with the fact that, as I mentioned before, it's pretty clear that the molecular epidemiology shows that MRSA is a disease of transmission. If you have a patient who has an MRSA infection or colonization they got that by transmission from another patient or a healthcare worker. We also know that there is an iceberg effect. If you rely on clinical cultures alone, that is cultures that are obtained at the order of a physician for diagnostic purposes, if you rely on those culture results to identify patients who are carriers of MRSA, we only see the tip of the iceberg. There's a much larger proportion of patients that are carriers that are not picked up by that strategy. If those asymptomatically colonized patients can serve as reservoirs of transmission, then there are those that argue that identifying them through the use of active surveillance culturing and applying additional infection control precautions to those patients may contribute to the prevention of transmission. The data on this are difficult to interpret. There is some grayness in the literature. There are many studies that suggest that the use of active surveillance in combination with other infection control interventions have been successful at preventing MRSA transmission in the outbreak setting and also in the endemic setting. There are other places in the world who have successfully controlled MRSA or at least prevented its spread that have employed techniques similar to these. And so there is suggestion in the literature that this practice can have benefit. However, there are more recent studies that are more mixed. There are recent crossover studies that demonstrated no impact. There's a recently finished randomized controlled trial that hasn't been published yet, but the results of that were presented publicly at an infection control meeting last year, suggested that there was no impact. On the other hand, there are some more recent studies that did have impact. So the literature is somewhat mixed. I think what all would agree, however, is that active surveillance is only one piece of what should be a multifaceted and comprehensive approach to the problem of MRSA transmission or antimicrobial resistance in general. We were talking a little bit about active surveillance culture. Are you talking literally about cultures which could take two or three days to come back or maybe a screening PCR test? What's the most timely way of doing this, and where would you obtain the sample for screening? Well, there are several methods available. There are some who have used a more traditional microbiologic approach using you know, MRSA screening media that can take up to two to three days to identify the isolate. As you mentioned, there are newer PCR technologies that have a much more rapid turnaround time. It remains to be seen what the relative advantage of the more rapid test as opposed to the slower, more conventional tests are. There are places that have reported success without using PCR. Again, time will tell whether the incremental benefit of the faster test will have, have a large impact. In terms of body sites for detecting asymptomatic MRSA colonization, the most commonly screened sites are the anterior nares, which is sort of the natural niche for staph aureus carriage in human beings. 
In addition to that, if the patient has an open wound, that's another place that Staph aureus likes to live and can be a high-yield body site in order to identify asymptomatic colonization. The best combination of body sites is something that remains to be determined. If you screen the anterior nares and any open wounds that exist, you're probably going to capture 90% plus of MRSA carriers. You'll miss some, and the question is how important is that epidemiologically in terms of a no overall prevention program, and, and again, that remains to be seen. There's more research to be done on looking at additional body sites. There's some interest in the oropharynx as a potential body site of carriage. But again, I think most places, from a practical point of view, are using the anterior nares and any open wounds that they exist. And are active surveillance with isolation enough, or are decolonization regimens necessary? Well, that's a question and one that we need a lot more research to answer. There is a recent study in a group of hospitals in the Chicago area who coupled active surveillance with the use of decolonization therapy and were able to demonstrate a pretty marked reduction in their infection rate, which interestingly occurred not only in patients' infections identified during the hospitalization, but also seemed to have some impact on infections that occurred in the 30 days following hospitalization. Again, following up on this concept that things that happen during an acute care stay can manifest themselves after the patients leave. Now, the problem with this is that was not a randomized controlled study. So I think although they're very interesting data, they need to be followed up with additional work. The downside of doing that is the concern about the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. There are plenty of examples in the literature where widespread use of decolonization therapy, particularly mupirocin, have resulted in a pretty rapid increase in the emergence of mupirocin-resistant strains. This was not reported as a major problem in the study of the Chicago hospitals, but I suppose time will tell. And it's not only an issue of resistance to mupirocin. Mupirocin resistance can be plasma-mediated, and sometimes these plasmids can carry other resistant determinants for other agents. And it's theoretically possible that the use of mupirocin could drive the spread of resistance to numerous antimicrobial agents. So this is a potential downside and something we have to look at carefully as these strategies are employed. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. John Jernigan. We've been discussing universal screening for MRSA among hospital patients. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157, and thank you for listening.